Good morning. It is, um, it is a good morning to be here. It is good to be with all of you. I'm thankful for all of you who have uh, come here this morning. Our lesson this morning, uh, if, you wanna, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Joel. That's where our lesson is going to come from. Um, I don't know how difficult it would be in the back, but uh, this is the, these are the slides for the Sunday evening lesson. Would it be possible to switch those out for the Sunday morning lesson? If not, then we'll just roll with it. Uh, we don't need slides. Uh, but uh, I might have sent them and, and labeled them wrong. I hope not. But, uh, but okay. So we're going to be in the book of Joel either way, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday evening. Uh, and so this is uh, in, uh, we're going to be in Joel chapter 2. And the book of Joel is, is one of those books I think is kind of often a forgotten book. It's a book that we might know the name of it, uh, and we might know that it's in there somewhere, but a lot of times we don't think of Joel when we are uh, considering um, some of the most important things, uh, you know, for the church, or when we're thinking of, like, encouraging passages. Joel doesn't always pop up into our heads. Joel, it's kind of short. It's one of the minor prophets. And one of the things that's interesting about Joel is that, in the book of Joel, there isn't a very clear time frame, or there aren't a lot of names. There's no, like, clear historical setting for the book of Joel. And I think that might mean uh, a couple of things. One is that the application of the book of Joel might be intended to not just fit one time for one group of people. Perhaps there's a reason that the, the setting of Joel is somewhat ambiguous. Even the major problem that is facing Israel, there's some questions about it. And even the major sins that Israel is engaged in, we're not told exactly what they are. It's like you read Joel and you know that there is doom coming. You know that there is a call for repentance. And you know that this is for the people of Israel. But you don't know exactly what that doom is going to look like. You don't know what sins Israel is engaged in. And you don't know exactly what time period is, is being discussed. You can, you can try to figure out some clues to piece some of those things together. But none of them are clearly stated. And I, that's one of the reasons I like Joel. Because as you read through it, it can in some ways, uh, call each and every one of us to realize, hey, maybe we live in a world where uh, there are hardships and there are problems. And maybe one of the good ways to respond to hardships and problems is to look at my life and to see, you know, are there things that I can do differently? Are there things that I can change? Are there ways that I can strive to grow closer to God? And I think Joel is an important reminder of, of that message. Um, in the book of Job, Job's friends look at the hardships in his life and they draw some pretty serious conclusions about that against Job, that Job has done something wrong. And I think we need to not ever fall into the trap of being Job's friends and looking at hardships in the world around us and saying, oh, this must mean you're a sinner or you've done this wrong or trying to overly define exactly what the problem is. However, I would say on the other side of that, we shouldn't become so blinded to the world around us that when things are happening, we never stop and look at ourselves and think, are there ways that I could grow closer to God? Are there things in my life that I could learn from this message? There's an important phrase that pops up repeatedly in the book of Haggai, and it is the phrase, consider your ways. And it's like when things in your world are kind of crumbling, maybe one of the ways you can respond to that 
is consider your ways. Introspection. And I think Joel is calling us to that same idea, to that same message. Um, what we want to do as a church here at Maryville, and I, we've mentioned it uh, recently, and I want to talk a little bit more about it, is on June 26th, we want to have a day of prayer and fasting. There are a lot of things going on in the world right now, and there are a lot of things going on in each and every one of our lives right now that I believe prayer and fasting could be very beneficial for. Uh, spending some time to think about where we are in our walk with God, uh, where we are in, uh, where we are headed, and uh, what our future looks like. And I think that the book of Joel is a book that calls the congregation of Israel to prayer and fasting. And so it becomes an important book for us to think about uh, this month. When I look at the world around us, I see a lot of things that are, uh, that are very painful, that are difficult, that can fill me with stress and anxiety, that can fill me with, with depression, that can fill me with a, a lot of pain. Um, you know, I, and I know that that's not something that's unique to me. I know that that's something every one of us sees. When you turn on the news and you see some of the most horrible things you could possibly read, when you see uh, how much violence there is in, in our country, when you see shootings, when you see innocent children going to school and suffering, like that's something that should impact you that's something that it's like that should never ever ever happen how in the world does that happen how do we get to a point where we're concerned that it's probably going to happen again and it's like like when it comes to these types of things you can you can look and it's it's a call it's it should be a wake-up call i guess to realize that there is deep-seated evil and sin and darkness in our world and it's not even just those types of shootings. I've seen people respond to those types of shootings while saying, well, if you look at this city, there's more shootings there. And I'm like, is that supposed to make me feel better? Like, is that a, is that a good thing? That there's, it's like you look at the world and there's, there's a tremendous amount of violence, whether it's gun violence or any kind of violence. We live in a dark and violent world. We live in a world where death reigns supreme and we see constant reminders of it. Even death, by the way, that's not a result of violence. I know in this building right here, so many of us have recently been touched by the plague and the hardship of death. So many people right here are experiencing grief that is a constant reminder that something in our world isn't right. When God created the world and he created the Garden of Eden, one of the things that you don't see there is death. You see life. You see a tree of life. You see fellowship and a walk with God in sin has fundamentally changed this world that we live in, and we see constant reminders of us when we are plagued by death. And we see death all around us in the mourning and the grief and the pain that's associated with that. Now, as Christians, we have hope. We have hope that there is a day coming when death will be overthrown, and God's original intention and restoration will, will, will take over, and we will be able to experience not death, but life forevermore. And that's a great and wonderful thing. But in the meantime, it's like we look and we say, I have the hope of life, but I still experience the pains of death. And they're mingled together. And sometimes that's a confusing and distressful thing. And we see it all around us. We see tremendous evil in our world. We see evil not just with respect to violence. You see evil in regard to abuse. You see evil in regard to, to sexual sins. I mean, I, I, I have been... Uh, troubled recently by seeing when I think of the church and when I think of we as the community and the people of God 
If there's one place in this world where people should be able to go to for safety, where people should be able to go to for help in times of trouble, I want it to be the church. And yet, so often, you turn on the news and you see reports of churches that are not only engaged in covering up or excusing or overlooking sexual abuse, you see churches where that happens. Not only do you see that on the news, I just got a message from, from a minister friend of mine recently. The church where they were, there was, there was a guy, and he's, he's apparently been touching several of the girls, and they've come forward, and it's like, you're like, that should not be what, what the church is. And yet you look at the world, and you see that like, not only can you be downtrodden because of pain and death, it's like sin has infiltrated even the place that's supposed to be a refuge from sin. And, and, and so often there's like a fear of coming forward because you don't know if people are going to believe you. And I, by the way, want to always be completely uh, transparent and clear and emphatic. If you ever here have experienced something like that, no matter who you are or what age you are, please know that you have a church here who loves you and you can go to. We will listen. We will care. We will believe. We will... We will we don't want the church to be a place that you're afraid to take these problems. Uh, but there are places where that culture has developed, and we never want that culture to develop here. If, you, if that's happened to you here, please feel free to come forward with that. We want you to. We encourage you to. We want an open, honest, faithful congregation of God's people. But I see that type of evil in the world. I, I know of, of even ministers you know, who have used their position to take advantage of those who should be under their spiritual care and to sow spiritual hardship and sin and darkness into their lives for their own gratification. And it's disgusting and it's, it's something that, uh, it's the exact opposite of what God called us to be. And I see that and I think, man, how does that happen? How does that happen regularly? But you not only see that, I mean, there are things that not even necessarily the result of, of our human evil, but you see natural disasters that take place in the world around us. You see sickness that take place in the world around us. Uh, I, I mean, COVID has been something that has been uh, plaguing us for a good long time, and sometimes you start feeling like, hey, it seems like things are getting better, but I've heard quite a few cases just recently, and I know of, of mission trips that some of the goals of those trips have been frustrated because of COVID going on there, and, and it's like, I, and I, I know of, of good works taking place here where, where COVID is starting to, to cause problems and, 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 and distress, and it's like, man, I'm ready for some, some peace through these things. But it's not only that, you look at the world around us and you see not only is there fear of violence and is there fear of sickness and is there fear of sin and wickedness and evil, but you look at the world and you just look at the economy and you say, you know, it's like something that, you know, all of a sudden having a child and wanting to provide baby formula is becoming something that's a source of stress in people's lives. Wanting to go on a family vacation. You're like, man, if you've seen plane tickets, like this was something we were excited about. But then even simpler things, just getting the groceries you need for your family. It's like every dollar that things increase is a little bit more stress on a family or on a relationship. And all of a sudden, these, these problems that you can start to enumerate, they, they're not just theoretical problems out there, but they begin to impact us by creating tension in our homes. I mean, like, when, when families are forced together, which is, you know, I didn't say forced together, but like, when you're stuck together, and all of a sudden, 
there's economic hardship and there's a lack of being able to to do some of the things that you would like to do or you can't your goals are frustrated and you can't accomplish those and you end up turning against one another it's like every one of these stressors becomes another weight to bear and it becomes another source of tension and hardship in life and in family and in relationships between husband and wife between children and parents between siblings and all of a sudden it's like you look at the world and you think when is this stuff going to stop it's like i just feel like for a lot of people the last couple of years it has been one thing after another 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 thing, after another thing and you're just you're just ready for a timeout. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're done with this. Uh, we need to take a break and we need to, I, I've seen it in, in basketball games where like a team has a lead and then the other team like drains a three and then drains a three, then gets a, you know, a quick score, then they can steal it. And all of a sudden he's like, okay, hold on timeout. We, we're about to lose something here and we need to take a break and regroup and go out there and get our heads together. And that's what June 26th is supposed to be right now. It's like, you look at the world and it's like, man, Satan's arrows are flying and they're causing problems, and I think they're causing stress, and I think whether you talk about politics, people are frustrated politically. You look at our culture, people are frustrated and confused about the direction our culture is going. You look at the church, and people don't always know what the future of the church is going to be. People look at their, their finances, and they're not what they were just not very long ago. People look at their relationships, and they find themselves frustrated at one another, frustrated at their friends, frustrated at their spouse. People look at the news, and it's like, no reprieve there, and we're saying, hey, let's stop for a moment. Let's take a break for a moment, and let's try to focus our hearts and our minds on what matters most. Um, the reason I'm talking about the book of Joel is as you read the first couple chapters, the first you know, chapter and a half of Joel, I kind of feel like Joel is describing that sort of life. It's like everything that you think can go wrong is going to go wrong in the book of Joel. Uh, it starts off with a locust plague. You're like, locust plagues? That's supposed to be for Egypt, not us. Like, that's supposed to be something that, that the evil nations suffer with. And Joel begins chapter 1 and verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And I'm thinking, I didn't even know there were these different kinds of locusts. Like, I didn't, like the, but he's like, oh, you think this locust plague is bad? Well, everything they left, the next one's going to come to eat. And you think, oh, we, good, glad that's over. No, everything they've left, the next locust is going to come eat. And you're like, we're not going to have anything left. Yeah, that's right, because everything they leave, they leave the next locust is going to come and eat. And it's just wave after wave of problem. If you start looking at the language that he uses, he uses the language of, of locust plague. He uses the language of drought, where like people and humans are wandering aimlessly looking for food, but they can't get any. He uses the language of darkness in the land, which again is, is Exodus language. He uses the language of, of fire, consuming everything. He says, you look at the world, and uh, notice chapter 2 in verse 3, the language of fire. He says, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns, and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them. Well, that's wonderful. The Garden of Eden's before you, and a desolate wilderness behind them. It's like as the plague moves through, they're turning Eden into a desolate wilderness. And sometimes we can look at the world, and we can see the potential for so much good, but all of a sudden it's being turned into a desolate wilderness. And so what happens? What happens is people wail and mourn and cry. Look at chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers. You know why the drunks and the wine drinkers are weeping and wailing? 
because there's no grapes left on the vine. And so the one thing that they're wanting to help get them through this darkness is the one thing they can't have. And they weep and they wail and they mourn and they cry. And then look at verse 8. Wail like a virgin girded in sackcloth for the bridegroom of your youth. He says, cry the way a, a, a bride would when she wants to appear beautiful before her husband and her youth. And she's going to appear before her. And instead of getting the beautiful wedding dress and gown, she gets sackcloth. On, on her. It's like, that's the type of wailing and mourning that people are going through. You get to verse 11. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers. Notice the repetition of the word wail and weep and mourn. It's like the farmers who make their living off the land, well, the land is suffering. Weep and wail because of it. You look at verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God. Those who are trying to lead the people spiritually, they weep and they wail and they mourn when they see the state of the world. And so I think you can make some comparisons between what's going on in the book of Joel and what we can so often see in the world around us. And I think just like I said, we needed a timeout. I think that's what Joel says. He says we need to take a break for a minute and refocus ourselves so that we don't get carried away in the darkness of this world thinking that there never is any light. So that we don't get carried away in the darkness of this world to think that there's never a better day coming. So that we don't forget that we actually do have a very bright light and a very glorious friend who loves us even in darkness, and that's God. Don't forget about God in the days of trouble and in the days of hardship. You look at Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. This is where things kind of shift from enumerating the horrors of the world around them. I've tried to do it, and Joel has tried to do it, uh, where things shift from enumerating how distressing the times can be to start saying, this is what I think we should do for a minute. I think we should, verse 12, return to the Lord. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. What he's saying is, when you find yourself overwhelmed by darkness, the number one thing you should probably do is think, all right, there are a lot of things outside of my control. I just listed a bunch of things outside of my control, but there's one thing I do have control over, and that is the fact that I can turn to God. That's something that's within my power. And he's saying, return to the Lord right now. Don't do so with dead demonstrations of symbolic ritual purity, all right? Don't just tear your clothes. Don't just go through the acts. Don't just show up at the church, but actually tear your heart and not just your garment. You know, you often see that, and it's, there's nothing wrong with tearing your garment. Like, that's, that's not a problem. People do that, and it's often a, a symbol of repentance in the Bible. But if you get to the point where you're tearing your heart and just like, all right, God, fix it, in your, or sorry, tearing your garment, and you're just like, okay, God, fix it, and your heart hasn't been changed and in, in, in sincerity drawn back to God, I don't think he cares for the ritualism all that much. Uh, I think God cares about a penitent heart more than what clothes you wear, more than what uh, ripping of the clothes you do. God wants legitimate people to, in love, turn to him in times of crisis, and I think that's something that every one of us can do without saying, oh, okay, we must have sinned to bring this about. I don't think that's necessarily what we have to, to say. It's our fault that there's these problems. But I do think in the face of problems, you can always remember to return to the Lord with all of your heart, to go and strive after God rather than getting carried away in the darkness that Satan is hurling at us. Number two, I think we should trust in the Lord. 
Not just return to the Lord, but there's a reason you return to the Lord. Because God is trustworthy at all times. As you continue to read in verse 13, he tells us why you should return to the Lord with all your heart. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering. It's like, I just mentioned a bunch of problems that on my own, I don't think that I can just like go out and solve them all tomorrow and say, hey, good news, guys, I did it. But there's a God who actually can. Like, there's a God who actually can. <laughs> uh, there's a God who, we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know what his future holds. And that's why Joel says in verse 14, who knows? But there is a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and who sees the world that we're in. And so return to him. If there's one place you should go when you're drowning, it's to the one who can save you from drowning. And if there's one place you can go in times of darkness, it's to the one who can save you from those times. And that's the Lord our God. And we know that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That comes from the book of Exodus. That, that's, that is, the children of Israel entered their covenant with God. They said, we're not going to be idolatrous. We're going to follow your law. We love you. You love us. Let's enter a covenant. And then Moses goes up on the mountain to get some laws. And they're like, hey, let's make a different God out of gold. And they do that, like immediately. They just completely reject what they promised to do with God. The covenant's broken. Their relationship is severed. And God could say, okay, well, I'll go find a new people. I'll go save some other people from slavery and see if they respond a little bit better. But that's not what God does. Instead of giving up on them and finding someone else, God relentlessly renews the covenant with them immediately. And he gives them another Ten Commandments. He, gives, he rewrites them. He, he, like, he doesn't give up on them. Even when they are absolutely 100% at fault for breaking the covenant, immediately breaking the covenant, God forgives them. Why? Well, the reason we're given is that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And that is the description of God that he wants us to have in our minds day after day. That's the description he gives of himself. By the way, I would say if your view of God is that he is a wrathful, angry God looking to destroy and condemn, and, 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 uh, and then he would say you have a very incorrect view of him. God wants us to think of him as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting concerning calamity. And that's what he's calling the children of Israel to believe about him. And that's why in times of calamity, always return to the Lord your God. So how are you going to do that? Well, June 26th, as I've been mentioning a couple of times, we're dedicating that as a day of prayer and fasting. When you look at verse 15, Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion. You do that by blowing a trumpet in Zion and alerting the people there's a need for a gathering. When you blow the trumpet, that could be a, mean a couple of things. Uh, in fact, in Joel, it does. Uh, there's two times where he says, blow a trumpet. The first one is warning. Like if you see an invading army coming in, you need to warn the people, you blow the trumpet so that they can either flee, prepare, like the women and children can flee, the men can grab their, their arms. And it's like you prepare because horrible things are about to head our way. In chapter two and verse one, that's why you blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Bad stuff is around us. All right, blow the trumpet. There's bad stuff happening around us. But then when you get to verse 15, he calls us to blow a trumpet for a different reason. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. 
gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. By the way, from elders to nursing infants and the smallest children, this is for everybody. Everybody join together in this. Don't neglect the need to return to God in times of calamity. He says, uh, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of his bridal chamber. Nothing's more important than this right here. Your wedding's not more important than this. Whether you're a bride or a bridegroom, it's time to assemble the people. He's saying things have gotten so dark, this is what matters now more than anything else. Call the people together. He goes on to uh, describe what this is going to look like. But we will talk next week a little bit more about specifics of strategies and ways that you can practice prayer and fasting. Um, you know, we'll talk about, you know, you might say, well, how, how am I going to, to do that? What's that going to look like? And, and we'll try to give you that information as we draw nearer to June 26. But I think Joel right now is giving us an indication that when the world seems dark, there is something you can do. Don't get swept away by the floods of darkness, but return to the Lord. Trust that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Gather the people together. Prioritize a day of calling out to the Lord your God. Prioritize a day of prayer and of fasting, whether you're old or whether you're young. Make this a priority right now in your lives. And in doing so, you might just be able to show the goodness of God to the world around us. When you get to verse 17, he says, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the peoples among us say, Where is their God? He's saying, Call out to the Lord, uh, ask him to relent, ask him to uh, not to make his people suffer through these things. Because why should the world look around and say, if there is a God, where is he? It's like, one thing you can do is show people the goodness of God. One thing you can do is demonstrate to the world around us that there really truly is a God, and he is the greatest source to go to in times of struggle and hardship. So as we draw our lesson to a close, I want to, uh, to present a challenge. June 26th is coming. Um, I want you to make a list of some of the most important things in your life and in the world right now that you think we need God's help with. Whatever it is that you may be going through as, as an individual or what you think our world, our community, our nation what, might be going through, begin to enumerate those things as things that you want to focus on as you approach God in prayer and as you approach God in fasting, as you go to God with the cares of the world on your shoulders and you pour them out to him, Start thinking about what some of those things could be. Think of ways that you can approach God with repentance. Think of ways you can approach God with love. Think of ways you can approach God with praise and worship in times of hardship. Think of ways that you can approach God with a broken and contrite heart. Think of ways that you can approach God in such a way that elevates Him and prioritizes your relationship with Him above all and everything else that you could possibly imagine. If there's anyone here this morning who would like the prayers and the help of this church. If you are going through hardship and you want the community of God to help you through it, that's kind of what we're here for. And we'd like to help you do that. We pray that you would let that be known. If anyone wants to become a Christian, become part of this community, name Jesus as Lord of your life, having your sins washed away in baptism, 
please come. You can sit on the front row. You can meet with some of our elders in the library in the back, and you can pour your heart out to them and talk to them. But if you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.